Very warm welcome to you all. Uh, good morning. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute here. And we are delighted to have with us Carl Emerson, deputy director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, and Gemma Tetlow, chief economist here. And we're going to be talking about spending, the outlook for the 2019 spending review. Um, much coverage this morning already of the IFS's work on this. Carl is going to take us through it. Gemma is going to give our perspective on that. This is the point, if you like, where the uh, IFS uh, work um, um, butts up against the, the IFG work on public services. And, uh, and then we'll take it from there. And I know there are a lot of questions and a lot of people next door. So uh, you can polish your questions too. Um, Carl, with that, uh, thank you very much indeed for being here this morning. And if you want to start. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So in some uh, parallel universe where Brexit wasn't happening, uh, the 2019 spending review would be one of the most important domestic policy decisions facing the government. How much money are we going to spend on competing public services? How much should we give to law and order? How much should we give to schools? Now, we're not in that world. Clearly, Brexit's happening. But the spending review remains a very, very um, important and perhaps something where event and something where perhaps there hasn't been much attention to it, um, at least to date. Now, there's much we don't know about the spending review this year. Um, we don't know what years will be covered. It's going to have to cover the financial year 2020-21. We don't know how many additional years, if any, the spending review will cover. We don't know what spending is going to be included in scope. Will it just be central government departmental spending, or will the Chancellor choose to leave other spending in scope um, for the allocations, for example, working age benefit spending? And we don't know the size of the spending envelope. One of the key decisions for the Chancellor is going to be how much money is actually going to make available in each year to this spending review. Now, answers to those decisions could be coming in the forthcoming spring statement. That's on March the 13th, so the Chancellor could set out all of those things then. Or he could decide that he's not ready to do that yet, so there's too much uncertainty, for example, in what's going to happen on March the 29th. Um, so he could decide to defer those decisions to a later point perhaps announcing them just before the summer, um, and then we might get the spending review allocations perhaps alongside a budget um, in the autumn. So that would be when we would find out exactly how much money each government department was going to get. Now, what I'm going to talk you through now is um, predicated on the most recent official fiscal forecast, those produced in the October 2018 um, budget. It's worth noting two things there. They're predicated on a smooth and orderly Brexit. Um, and also forecasts change. They, will ch they have changed before and they will change again. There's a lot of uncertainty. So for example, back in that October budget, the OBR said that it felt the outlook for receipts was improved by some 18 billion pounds a year over the medium term. The Chancellor decided that rather than offset that increase in the tax burden with tax cuts, or, and rather than use that money to pay down the deficit faster, he allocated that all to his provisional um, spending plans. So you know, we don't know exactly how much money is going to be available as yet. We also saw last week, just on Thursday, the Bank of England downgrade its forecast for growth this year. So it now thinks the economy will grow by half a percent less this year than it previously thought. It's now more pessimistic than the OBR about growth. Now, if the OBR downgraded its forecast by about the same amount, you'd expect to see GDP this year coming in about 10 billion pounds less and you'd expect to see government borrowing pushed up by around five to seven billion pounds. So that's giving you a feel for what kind of revisions you might see. And clearly that would offset a chunk of that 18 billion improvement that we saw just in October. So what's the backdrop to the spending review? Well, the 
Two lines here show you total public spending and day-to-day -day public spending, so that's excluding investment spending, as a share of GDP from 97, with those provisional plans going right the way through to 23-24. And you can see in terms of both measures of spending, we've now largely unwound that increase in public spending as a share of GDP that occurred as a result of the financial crisis, largely unintended increase in the size of the state. So both total spending and day-to-day -day spending back to pre-crisis levels, the provisional plans imply to total public spending staying pretty flat as a share of GDP, day-to-day -day spending falling slightly, um, pushing it, if delivered, pushing it back down to the level we saw in 2003-04. On the tax side, the tax burden at the moment is relatively high by UK historical standards, and the forecasts imply it rising a bit more over the next few years. So tax receipts already exceed day-to-day -day spending, so we, we're running a current budget surplus. We weren't doing that just before the crisis. Tax receipts forecast to continue growing as a share of GDP over the next few years, but not catching up with total spending, so still forecasting a deficit at the end of the period, and that's despite the Chancellor's commitment to eliminate that deficit um, at least by the mid-2020s. So that commitment, um, there's still some way to go. But borrowing is low by historical standards already, and it's forecast to fall over the next few years, so you might say, well, do we need to continue reducing it? And clearly, one argument for doing that is because we might be worried about the size of debt. We've done lots and lots of borrowing over the last few years. Spending's exceeded tax by a great amount. Debt to GDP is about 50% higher than it was before the crisis. So we might be worried about that. We might be worried about having room to manoeuvre should another recession or financial crisis hit. And the Bank of England last week said there's about a one in four chance of recession hitting in the current year. But of course it's also the case the government's able to borrow very cheaply at the moment and as long as the government continues to be able to borrow cheaply, well we can manage a higher level of debt. We might be more relaxed about that. So that's one of the key trade-offs the Chancellor needs to think about. So what's the spending review going to be about? Well, as I said, one, one issue is whether it just covers departmental spending. So that's spending by central government departments on the delivery and administration of public services, known as departmental expenditure limits. Day-to-day -day spending um, within those departments is about 36% of total public spending. Capital spending within those budgets is just below 6%. So in total, if the spending review only focuses on departmental spending, it's looking at about 40% um, of public spending. A large chunk of the rest is made up by social security spending, spending going to pensioners, spending going to working age individuals. Now, the spending reviews of 2010 and 2015 included in scope the working age benefit budget. Now we're going to assume that isn't going to be the case for the forthcoming spending review. We assume that the government's going to allow the current set of cuts to working age benefits to work their way through, but not announce further cuts on top of that. There's also spending carried out by local authorities, the Scottish Parliament, there's spending on debt interest, which is clearly outside the government's control, and there's a whole set of other things um, which make up the rest of spending, much of which it's very difficult for the government to cut, um, at least in the near term. So now we're going to focus on departmental spending. And if we look at that as a share of GDP, you can see that we've, been, we've followed the grand old Duke of York. It's been marched up to the top of the hill in 2009-10 and then marched back down again. So it's now back to 2001-2 um, levels. And the latest forecasts suggest it remaining roughly constant as a share of GDP. So in real terms, there's been significant cuts over the last few years. £40 billion has been cut out of departmental spending. It's currently 10% uh, or £40 billion lower than it was at its peak. 
It's forecast to grow over the next few years. So if your definition of austerity is, is departmental spending growing by more than inflation, well, austerity is over. But it's quite remarkable, by 23-24, at least on these forecasts, we'll have had 13 years of continuous economic growth, and yet we'll still be spending £10 billion less on departmental spending than we were back in 2009-10. So a very remarkable period. And those, those cuts that we've seen have not been allocated equally across departments. The overseas aid budget, which has been subject to much attention in this morning's news, has seen its budget increase dramatically over recent years. The budget of the health and social care department has also grown. And you've seen cuts elsewhere, cuts to the defence budget, cuts to the education budget, and some other budgets facing incredibly large cuts. So, for example, the Ministry of Justice, its budget is 40% lower in real terms than it was back in 2010-11. Um, so remarkable cuts been implemented to that department's budget. It's also the case that the path of capital spending has not been the same as the path of day-to-day -day spending. Capital spending was cut a lot in the first couple of years after 2010, it's not been cut as much more recently, and going forwards it's forecast to grow more quickly than day-to-day -day spending. So the government is committed to an increase in capital spending that if delivered will bring it up to pretty high levels by historical standards. But what does that imply for the day-to-day -day budget? So we look at day-to-day -day spending on public services. Um, you can see that it's been cut in recent years. It's forecast to grow going forwards, but by 23-24 it'll be about £10 billion lower than what it was back in 2010. If we look at day-to-day -day spending on departments per capita, that's also forecast to grow over the next few years. So if that's your definition of austerity, is day-to-day -day spending per capita growing in real terms? Well, over the provisional plans at least imply that it will do. As a share of national income, because there is some um, productivity growth being forecast, it's actually forecast to decline, but only very, very slightly. So austerity largely over on that measure too. But of course, if you wanted to put day-to-day -day spending per capita in 23-24 back to the level we were enjoying back in 2010, you'd have to add quite a lot to those provisional spending plans. The Chancellor would have to find over £40 billion. And supposing he wanted to put day-to-day -day spending as a share of national income, not back to the 2010 level, because that wasn't really intended, but if he wanted to put it back up to the pre-crisis level, he'd need to find over £50 billion of additional spending. So that's day-to-day -day -day spending as a whole, but within that we know the government's going to make different choices. So it's already committed to substantial sums to be spent on the NHS, Theresa May last summer committing to the NHS England budget being increased by £20.5 billion over the next five years. So we can see what that's going to do to the Department of Health, Health and Social Care budget here. It's going to grow in real terms and it's going to grow much more quickly than what that department has had um, to enjoy or to endure over the last um, ten years. If we look in per capita terms, the healthcare budget is also is forecast to grow, so healthcare spending growing faster than the size of the population. But of course the healthcare budget faces other pressures. It's not just the fact that there's more of us in the country. We're getting older. The baby boomers in particular are now reaching the stage in their lives where they put increasing demands on the NHS budget. But if we age adjust the spending as well as look at it in per capita terms, we can see it's still forecast to increase. And that's contrary to what's happened over the last eight years. So over the last eight years, the additional money that the NHS has received has pretty much all been swallowed up by the costs of dealing with a growing and ageing population. Over the next five years, at least on these plans, it looks like the NHS will have a little bit more than that. Um, so age-adjusted per capita spending is forecast to grow. 
There's also some commitments outside of the NHS. On defence spending, the government's committed to spend at least 2% of GDP in line with our NATO commitments. On overseas aid, the government's committed to spending 0.7% of our gross national income. And actually, recent practice suggests that we'll spend exactly that amount, not a penny more, not a penny less. So those areas of spending, largely the spending review's not got much to do there. There's a largely, you know, that, that's, that's already been done. Um, and in terms of day-to-day -day spending by departments, that's £156 billion worth of spending, over half of departmental spending largely already determined. So if the spending review is really about departmental spending outside of the NHS, outside of defence and outside of overseas aid, it means the spending review will then only be about, be about a fifth of total public spending. What's also clear is that, at least on the provisional plan set out in the October budget, while they imply departmental spending growing over the next few years, that growth isn't enough to pay for these commitments to the NHS, to defence and to overseas aid. So if we want to keep to those provisional plans and retain those commitments, that implies continued cuts to the budgets of unprotected areas. So if we now look at unprotected day-to-day -day public service spending. So spending by central government, day-to-day -day spending by central government after inflation, excluding the NHS, excluding aid and excluding defence. We can see that the provisional plans in the budget imply that falling over the next few years, if the Chancellor wanted to avoid um, that being cut overall, he'd have to find another £2 billion or so by 23-24. Population's growing. Um, in terms of real per capita spending, um, if he wanted to avoid cuts to that, the Chancellor would have to find another £5 billion on top of his provisional spending totals um, by 23-24. And in terms of spending as a share of national income, if the Chancellor wanted to avoid that budget being cut, um, he'd need to find £11 billion of additional funding by 23-24. So for these government services, outside of defence, outside of aid, outside of the NHS, at least on the provisional plans, it looks like austerity is going to continue. It's worth noting that that path of austerity, though, is much slower than what those departments have been used to over the last eight years. So that £2.2 billion translates to cuts of about 0.4% a year. So a continuation of cuts, but we think those departments on average have had to deliver about 3% a year over the, last year over the last eight years. So a continuation of austerity, but at a much slower pace than what we've seen um, in the recent past. And finally, I couldn't have a presentation without talking about um, Brexit. Um, as I said at the start, the, the fiscal forecasts produced by the OBR are predicated on a smooth and orderly Brexit. And they also assume that the economy, well, they, they believe that the economy will be smaller as a result of Brexit and the public finances will be weaker. Additional analysis produced by the government also confirms that view, as does the analysis of most economists. So over the longer term, as a result of Brexit, GDP will most likely be lower and the public finances weaker. So at some point, we'll be doing some tax rises or spending cuts that we wouldn't have had to do absent Brexit. Now, of course, there's different ways of doing Brexit, um, and we might go and do Brexit in a way which is particularly economically damaging. So, for example, leaving the European Union without a deal, crashing out in a disorderly way. If we do that, there's clearly going to be a bigger hit to the economy in the near term. There'd most likely be a bigger hit in the long term too, so we'd probably be doing greater tax rises and spending cuts, at least at some point. But that might not mean that we'll have a tighter spending review 2019. Actually, in this world, the Chancellor would have to make quite a different, difficult judgment call, as would the MPC. What they'd need to look at is how big is the hit to supply, to capacity in the economy, 
And how big has the hit to demand been? What's happened to business confidence? What's happened to consumer confidence? And you might imagine a disorderly Brexit being a combination of a big negative hit to demand and a big negative hit to supply. And in this world, you'd almost certainly allow the, what's known as the automatic stabilizers to operate, a smaller economy feeding into lower tax receipts and therefore more borrowing. If you thought that the hit to consumer confidence and business confidence was particularly large, and particularly large relative to the hit to supply, you might decide to do some active fiscal loosening, just as we did in the financial crisis. So, for example, if the MPC wants to loosen monetary policy, but there's not much scope to cut interest rates, you might imagine measures being announced to try and encourage consumers to spend or encourage businesses to invest. Now, of course, those kind of policy decisions aren't really ones that affect a spending review, which is about departmental spending. So what might Brexit mean for the spending review? Well, if we were going to have a disorderly Brexit, you might imagine additional spending being needed to help departments dealing with border issues. The government's already made £2 billion of funding available in 2019-20. Maybe they'd need more in that year. Maybe they'd need money in a further years too. You might also imagine a case for some temporary support um, targeted at hard-hit industries or hard-hit parts of the country, parts where um, the trade barriers that might be appearing were having particularly damaging effects in the short run and potentially effects that might otherwise endure, and you might believe that some temporary support could help limit the extent to which um, those scars occur. So to conclude, many government departments have experienced deep cuts since 2010. Overall, departmental spending has been cut by 10% or £40 billion in real terms. There's going to be a spending review at some point this year, and it's going to set spending plans for some years beyond 2019-20. We already know that the government's committed to an extra £20 billion to be spent by NHS England over the next five years. And we also know the government's committed to protecting the defence budget and the aid budget. So given that, over half of day-to-day -day spending is already largely decided before the spending review kicks off. The Chancellor needs to decide what his spending envelope is going to be. The provisional figures he set out al alongside the October budget imply that Unprotected services are going to face continued cuts, so it's not an end to austerity, although it would be austerity at a much slower pace than what we've seen since 2010. And if we were to embark on a disorderly Brexit, at some point that would likely require additional tax rises or spending cuts, but not necessarily over the coming spending review period. And in fact, such a Brexit could mean that we should respond by increasing rather than cutting departmental spending in the near term. Thank you. Carl, thank you very much indeed. Almost a Brexit-free zone, as you said. And interestingly, the coverage this morning was, um, was, was very much not on the Brexit elements. Um, we hoped, um, suggesting that people might actually be getting, yeah, re regaining the capacity to talk about other things. Um, just to be clear on this, you've assumed a smoothish Brexit yes. in, your, in, your, in your projections. Thanks very much. Gemma, with that, um, your view on these pressures. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, so Carl has set out the financial trade-offs facing the Chancellor in this year's spending review. But to really understand the decisions that are facing Mr Hammond, it's also worth looking back at what has happened to different service areas over the last decade and where that has left different services and therefore the scope to look for further savings in some of the same areas again. 
So as Carl said, public services outside the NHS, overseas aid and defence have faced cuts on average of about 3% a year over the last decade in real terms. But the tightness of that squeeze hasn't been evenly felt across service areas. In part, that is because, as Carl showed you in one of his charts, the spending cuts haven't been the same across all areas. Uh, but also demand for different services has been growing at different rates over the last <coughs> decade. And in addition, some services have managed to find ways of doing things more efficiently, while others have struggled to do that and so found it harder to deal with budget cuts. And as a result, there's now a mixed picture of presses across different services, and that has implications for where the government might or might not be able to find further savings in the upcoming spending review. So looking first at day-to-day -day spending on different areas of public services. Um, this chart, which is taken from our performance tracker publication, which we put out in October, shows how spending on various services has changed in real terms since 2010-11. Our performance tracker looks at nine areas of public services, but I'm going to focus here mainly on the seven that are not the NHS, because as Carl said, the NHS settlement has really already been decided for the upcoming spending review. So at the top, you can see spending on GPs and hospitals has increased by more than 10% since 2010-11, in line with the government's desire to protect uh, spending on the NHS, and that's going to continue going forwards. Those aren't the only areas that have seen spending growth in the last 10 years. So spending on children's social care has also grown by a similar amount in real terms over that period. Spending on adult social care has been cut somewhat, but certainly less than the average over this period. But at the other end of the spectrum, among the services that we look at in our performance tracker report, uh, spending on prisons and the police has been cut by more than 10% in real terms since 2010. And right at the bottom there, you can see spending on the criminal court system is now more than 25%, uh, well, nearly 25% lower than it was in 2010-11. But as I said, spending isn't the end of the story. Um, so demand has grown very differently in, in different service areas. Demand for adult and children's social care has grown particularly rapidly over this period. In the case of adult social <coughs> care, that can clearly be explained by the rapid growth in the oldest old age population of the UK. In the case of, case of children's social care, it's a bit less clear why demand for that area of services has been growing. And in fact, the NAO put out a report a couple of weeks ago highlighting the difficulty of knowing why that area of demand has grown so quickly and therefore whether we might or might not expect that to growth in demand to continue over the next few years. If we do, then obviously that would put great upward pressure on local authorities to continue spending in that area. Demand uh, has been essentially flat for schools and for prisons. The number of pupils and the number of uh, prisoners has been broadly flat over this period. And that means that for schools, poor pupil funding has actually been broadly kept pace um, over the last 10 years. It started to fall slightly in real terms over the last three years, but um, spend spending per pupil in real terms in schools is roughly where it was back in 2010. For prisons, in contrast, that flat number of prisoners has been accompanied by a decline in spending and therefore per prisoner spending has been falling over this period. The only service among the ones that we look at where you could really say that demand has fallen in any sense is in the criminal court system, where the criminal courts were receiving fewer cases in last year than they were in 2010-11. Putting all of that together, uh, all of the service areas that we looked at have seen some need to try and bridge the gap between growth in spending and growth in demand, because growth in demand has outstripped growth in spending in almost all areas. 
All the services that we have looked at have managed to bridge that gap to some extent by holding down pay and by cutting staff numbers. Um, and that, that reduction in, in pay growth has obviously been helped by the public sector pay cap that was in place through much of this period, although has been eased more recently. Um, Services have also been asking staff to do more. Um, so, for example, in 2017-18, local authority food hygiene staff were each completing an average of 246 inspections and other interventions each year. And that's 23 more, or a 10% increase, compared to what they were doing in 2009-10. There has also been a trend in many of these service areas to asking users to contribute more in some way, whether that's in terms of time or money. So, for example, we've seen a very rapid growth in the number of volunteers running local library services at the same time as paid staff have been cut back quite dramatically. We've also seen, for example, limiting entitlement to legal aid, so asking people defending themselves in court to make more of a contribution themselves. We've also found some examples of services that have introduced new ways of working to try and allow them to do more with less. You see that, for example, in GP surgeries, making more use of telephone consultations, although that still remains very much the minority. And also the criminal court system in particular have managed to reduce some elements of duplication that used to occur in the system. So genuinely managing to do more with less. Um, but those examples do seem to be the exception rather than the rule. In most services, they've simply been trying to become more efficient by trying to push staff and other resources to achieve more uh, with less. As a result, there are growing signs of strain across many of the service areas that we looked at. Um, one area where this has been very evident in terms of a decline in quality is in the prison system, where there's been quite a significant increase in violence in prisons. So the number of assaults on prisoners was about double in 2017 what it was in 2010. The number of assaults on staff had roughly tripled over that period. Um, Rory Stewart, the prisons minister, has obviously um, put his neck on the line to address rising violence in prisons. Uh, but the latest data that came out right at the end of last month suggested that prison violence has continued to grow, including in six of the ten prisons that Rory Stewart said he was personally committed to um, improving. We've also highlighted particular concerns about adult social care uh, because of concerns about the sustainability of the private provider market. For example, in 2017, the Competition and Markets Authority estimated that private providers were being paid roughly 10% less than the true cost of providing a care place in care homes by local authorities. And so those private providers that are particularly reliant on uh, clients coming from being paid for by the public sector are quite financial, financially vulnerable because of that. There are also problems in a number of services in recruiting and retaining high-quality staff. You see that, for example, in the number of vacancies for children's social care workers, for adult social care staff, uh, difficulties recruiting teachers and difficulties with recruiting high court judges. Uh, there's also some evidence of declining pay satisfaction, rising rates of long-term sickness in the police force. And there has been overspending in some areas. Now, obviously, some public services simply cannot overspend their budgets. But for those where there is the possibility of doing that, um, and in particular, we're talking here about schools, hospitals, and uh, children's social care services, there is some evidence in recent years of a growing tendency to overspend on planned budgets. So overall, of the seven services outside the NHS that we examined in our performance tracker last year, we highlighted most concern uh, in the prison services and in adult social care. 
Uh, the government has obviously already recognised the problems in the prison service and extra money was pumped in in the autumn statement of 2016, but it'll be interesting to see what, what happens with that in the coming spending review. Uh, for adult social care, we're obviously still waiting for the social care green paper that will uh, talk about the government's vision and plans for that area of services alongside the plans for the NHS. So taking all this together, uh, then what do we think are the, the main messages and recommendations for the forthcoming spring statement and spending review? Um, so firstly, given what I've just said about concerns about various areas of performance in public services and that it's not just money going in that matters, um, after nine years of spending restraint and with the easy cuts uh, no doubt having already been made, we think the Treasury needs to focus more in this spending review on thinking about the performance of services. What do ministers really think they're going to get for the money that they put into those services? And are those assumptions really realistic? To help with that, we think the, the Treasury should make greater use of external expertise to help try and help them understand some of the pressures facing these different service areas and what is really feasible in terms of changing the way that these services operate over the spending review period. Going back to the sort of fiscal trade-offs that Carl was talking about, it's clearly also going to be necessary, particularly if this forthcoming spending review is more than a one-year settlement, uh, for the Chancellor to clarify what <coughs> his fiscal objectives are beyond 2020-21. As Carl said, so far we have a rather loose commitment to eliminating the deficit by the mid-2020s. Um, so we need clarity about the overall fiscal objective. We also need to know uh, for the spending review whether the Chancellor has any intentions to either raise taxes or to cut other areas of spending outside public services, so changes to the working age welfare budget or changes to the pensioner budget that might affect the sort of trade-offs that will be seen for public services. During his very brief time as Work and Pension Secretary, Stephen Crabb said there would be no further cuts to the working age uh, welfare budget, um, and the current government has shown no particular appetite for cutting pensioner uh, benefits. If those constraints remain in place, um, combined with the protections that have now been announced for the NHS aid and defence, it means, as Carl said, that the government is fishing in an increasingly shallow pool for further savings, with only about 20% of total public spending uh, really being in scope for the upcoming spending review. Finally, uh, the spending review is an opportunity to think about some of the pressures and issues that really cross departmental boundaries. The obvious one uh, for the immediate term is Brexit, where there are issues which do cut across departmental boundaries. Uh, the other areas they might want to think about are the role and funding of local authorities, um, where clearly that's an area of services that has experienced very deep cuts in recent years, and many local authorities now are just increasingly having to focus all their resources on delivering adult and children's social care, where the pressures are growing. Uh, and the Treasury might also want to think about the overall efforts that they want to make to improve value and efficiency across services, which could be coordinated at a central level. So thank you all now. Hand back to Bromwell. Gemma, thanks very much indeed. Let me, let me start by asking both of you the most practical question about the spending review 2019. Uh, when does it have to happen? It's supposed to happen, uh, start happening about now. Um, slid later because of, of, of Brexit. When, when does it have to happen, by? So if we think about the kind of final deadline, um, the government needs to tell government departments what... What, how much money they're going to have to spend beyond 2019-20. Um, 
So, and it has to announce that before the end of this calendar year. In particular, I think the local government settlement has to be done by early December. So there's a date, late autumn, um, where the final allocations have to be made. Now, before that, clearly the work has to be done by each spending department mm. putting their bids into the Treasury. And before that, the, the Treasury presumably wants to say, well, this is how much money you've got. This is the envelope. With. This is the yeah. envelope. So I would imagine an envelope being announced before the summer and then a spending review announced perhaps alongside that autumn right. budget um, to happen no later than the start of December is probably as tight as it can get. Right, and you'd like to see at least some of that in the spring statement? Well, the spring statement yeah. seems like an obvious opportunity for the Chancellor to update us on his thinking and to set out what he can do. I mean, if, if the uncertainty is really, really great and he feels we're not able to commit, I'm not sure how much extra information he's really going to have by some <coughs> June. If we're really in a world where it's so difficult, perhaps the right thing to do is to go for a shorter spending review period and mm. you know, defer the decisions about how much money we're going to spend in 2022, 2023 to a later date. When, when the outcome of Brexit is... Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, Gemma, we haven't uh, encouraged the spring statement to be a big thing at the, at the IFG. No, so I mean, we've obviously recommended in the past that this should be one fiscal event for the year to partly to discourage chancellors from tinkering around the edges um, with things. Um, I mean, I, I think I would agree with Carl in terms of the timing. Um, and whilst I think in general we would encourage longer. Um, spending reviews to give departments more certainty and to be able to plan. I think we probably are in an unusual situation with Brexit of the uncertainty over the next few years, which might uh, speak to doing something shorter if you can't make those really carefully thought out longer term decisions. And it's kind of strange yeah. we've gone from a world where just over a year ago, the Chancellor was saying, well, we're going to have a spending review. And what I'm going to do first is say how much money will be available. And then within that, we can decide our priorities. And that's how we should do it. And then lo and behold, last year's spring statement didn't do that. And then the Prime Minister stroke the government spent 20-odd billion pounds on the NHS. And we still don't know what the envelope's going to be. So we, we are partly doing this the kind of wrong way round. We need to be thinking about what size of state do we want, what the trade-off with that is, with tax, with borrowing, and then thinking about within that what our priorities are and you know, to what extent do we want to increase spending on the NHS versus some of these perhaps less high-profile services where spending has been cut a lot in recent years. Yes, and I'll, I'll come back to that. But I just want to pick up some of the figures that you've, you've mentioned. You, you put it out extremely clearly, um, but I think that they're still sometimes not appreciated. You've said, look, this is austerity, even if uh, uh, for the non-protected departments, uh, even if not quite as severe as we've seen, and that the Chancellor would have to raise or find, as you said, five billion um, over the next four years um, to keep those where they are in terms of spending per head, and 50 billion to take them back to pre-crisis. Uh, 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 pre-crisis levels. Um, so that's a lot of money simply to keep things where they are, if that were his choice. Yeah, so it's been partly it's a story of how remarkable the decade has been, um, mm. how poor the economic performance has been, and therefore how much less money we have to spend on stuff, which includes public services. And if the forecasts turn out to be correct, which clearly they won't, but imagine they did, um, by 2023, we'd be spending you know, less in real terms on public services in aggregate than we were in 2010, despite having had 13 years of continual economic growth, which is remarkable. Um, going forwards, if the Chancellor wants unprotected services not to see their day-to-day -day budgets being cut in per capita terms, he needs to find another £5 billion. Um, which won't be easy to do, particularly if the forecasts move in the direction that the Bank of England suggests they might last week. Mm. And to pick up what we know of Labour's spending plans, and they've talked about um, putting money into extra things, like, for example, student loans, so they'd have to find that on top 
of what is implied, it seems to me, in the, in the, in the spending plans, which is re re protecting public services where they are. Yeah, one of the notable things about the, the last Labour Party election manifesto was that you know, they clearly were proposing a very different direction of travel from the current government, a big increase in tax to pay for a big increase in spending. But as you say, they, that increase in spending wasn't really about we want to reverse all of these welfare cuts or we want to reverse these cuts to the Justice Department or the Home Office Department. It was about we want a large part of that spending was really about we want to have three higher education and we want to have a massive expansion in childcare. Um, nice things to have, but it wasn't about reversing the cuts that we'd seen in other areas. And even on social security benefits, the extra money they were pledging there was only offsetting a minority of the cuts that were being you know, yeah. implied by yeah. government policy. Joma, what's your feeling about the room for more efficiency, the holy grail of these, these kind of things? If people want to say that money, you know, a squeeze on money in isn't necessarily a squeeze on what came out. And we did see some improvements in efficiency in, in, in local government and so on. What about the room from here? So I think, as I said, there are clearly areas where some services have managed to do things in a different way that allows them to do more with the money they've got. Um, but that does seem to be the exception rather than the rule. And there were certainly, if you look at the government, the plans of different departments, there was a lot more ambition in those plans than has really been achieved so far. So even in the criminal court system where we concluded that they are doing things more efficiently than they once did, their plans for reform are even more ambitious than that and they are behind schedule on delivering on those things. So I think probably the lesson is it's hard to find those savings. Um, it's certainly hard, the sort of tendency is to cut staff first and then worry about how to change the ways of working afterwards. So a lot of the efficiency savings so far have been by holding down pay and cutting staff numbers and just asking people to do more rather than really managing to change those ways of working. Mm. We did have people saying to us in local government uh, quietly that some of the first cuts were easy, but, but not, 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 not the later ones which have been uh, have really changed services. Yeah. What have you found about how, um, take two of the areas that have been cut um, a, lot, a lot, local government and... Um, uh, and the criminal justice system of what that's done to the actual services? So if you look at local government, um, I mean, the main trade-off there has been between the statutory services that local authorities have to provide, which is adult social care and children's social care. Um, on the adult social care side, it, they're not providing help to more people. They're providing help to a similar number of people now, which presumably means that they are focusing their efforts on those who are most in need and have least financial resources to help themselves, which means that there are probably people these days who maybe 10 years ago would have got help from the local authority and are now having to provide that help themselves. So there's a growing focus on using unpaid uh, family and friends care to meet that need. Um, so we've just changed the threshold. In children's social care, um, spending has increased to meet that growing demand. Um, as I said, there's not a great understanding about why that demand has grown, whether it's more nervousness among people referring children to social services yeah. in the way that they wouldn't in the past. Um, in the justice system, um, you see a mixed picture. So Carl showed the very big cut to the justice budget. Part of that was the attempt to cut the prisons budget, where the pretty rapid rise in levels of violence, you can see that the prison officers didn't really manage to do things differently. Um, I think the court system is a slightly different case where actually there were savings to be made in a slightly inefficient 
paper-based, duplicated, um, old way of working, and they are trying to make those changes, but they're taking longer. And of course, you have people saying, I mean, on one hand, as you, as you said, look, there are real savings here from bringing it into the modern world. On the other hand, if you uh, end up with courts that the public does not trust, you're, um, it's not just like cutting incrementally some other service. You, you're into something very different. Carl, let me ask you about the long term. You have the health service, um, with this great dollop of money it's got, actually managing to beat um, uh, the, 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 the uh, demographic pressures. Um, in terms of the, the, the spending, but what about beyond the period of this spending review? What do the longer-term pressures on that look like? Yeah, I, mean, I, I should stress, I mean, the NHS faces other pressures other than that from a growing and ageing population. It's an area where traditionally it's been very, very difficult to deliver efficiency improvements um, compared to perhaps elsewhere in the economy. So it's not that the NHS settlement's going to lead to a massively improved NHS in five years' time compared to what we have now. Um, but over the longer term, if you know, given demographics, but also given those cost pressures that mm. the NHS faces, um, the OBR figures suggest actually the state will continue to become one which um, healthcare is a growing and growing part of, as will be the pensioner um, uh, benefits bill, and the state will be doing less and less elsewhere. I think the difficulty is actually... <coughs> If you look back to the period since sort of 1970, we've increased the size of the state that the NHS has been taken up and we've found cuts to things like the housing budget as we've sold off housing. We've cut the defence budget a lot as we've enjoyed the end of the Cold War. Um, they're kind of one tricks. We can't cut the defence budget by 4% of GDP again because it's only now 2% of GDP being spent on it. Mm. Um, so how are we going to manage this? Are we going to perhaps not allow the NHS to grow as much as those forecasts suggest, not accommodate that increase in costs? Or are we going to suddenly find somewhere else in government where we're going to cut? Or are we going to allow the state to be bigger and therefore we need to have a serious conversation about how we increase tax, who should be paying it and how to design that? Well, let's come on to that because you, you've used the words uh, uh, the Chancellor will have to find more. Um, very coyly at, at different points in this and obviously he has the choices between taxes um, urging people to pay more themselves directly in, in some cases or, um, or raising borrowing um, where do you, how, do, how do these options in some ways, he had that choice back in the autumn in a slightly subtle way and that the OBR said we think that tax receipts are going to be 18 billion years stronger than we previously thought. So that's an 18 billion increase in the tax burden, not one that he has to perhaps not quite as painful politically as standing up and saying I'm going to put this tax rate up or this tax rate up, but it was an increase in the tax burden. And he could have said, no, I don't want that. I want taxes to be lower and spent it on tax cuts. Or he could have said, oh, what I really want to prioritise is eliminating the deficit. And if he'd put all of that money to deficit reduction, he would have been on course to eliminate the deficit. But he didn't make either of those choices. He's chosen instead to top up his spending plans, mm. albeit ones that still imply cuts to unprotected services. So, you know, in some sense, he had a choice in the autumn and he made the choice to go for a higher tax, higher spending mm. um, world mm. than what was implied by his previous set of forecasts. Now, that doesn't mean he'd do the same again, mm. but I think it's, you know, it's interesting he went down that route. Mm. what do you make of that? And you've been doing some work on how um, some of these services have been actually quietly getting people to pay more themselves. Yeah, so it's one thing that we picked up in the performance tracker report last year is actually the extent to which services have managed to deal with some of this cut of central funding by getting people to contribute more themselves, whether that's devoting their time to volunteer to run local services or just charging fees. So, for example, the, um, the cut to the justice budget has in part been offset by greater charging of fees to court users, less so in the criminal court system and more in the civil court system. Um, so it's kind of 
we've, there's been a reticence to increase the explicitly increased taxes, but actually people who are unfortunate enough to need some of these public services are being asked to contribute more for that themselves. And let me just, just broaden out this point finally before we go to questions. And if you, uh, Carl, as you said, we, it's been a really unusual decade we've, we've had. If you take a step back and look over it, and we've had this debate about, you know, at the beginning of the decade, austerity necessary, uh, we need to get down the deficit, uh, we, uh, you know, national borrowing can, can be a real problem. Where do you feel, I'm not asking you to speak for the whole of economics, but where do you, where, where do you feel sentiment is on that at, at the moment about the priority of the deficit and the potential threat of, of national borrowing? Yeah. Well, clearly back in 2010, we had a deficit that was 10% um, of national income. Um, we, there was no way we were going to be able to sustain that over the longer run. We had choices about how quickly we chose to reduce it and how we chose to um, reduce it. We're now in a world where we've got the deficit back to pre-crisis levels, but we've done lots of borrowing over the last eight years. That terrible economic performance has translated into weaker tax receipts. So we've now got a much higher level of debt, and that's going, to be remain, that's going to remain the case for a long while. There's no way that debt's going to come back to pre-crisis levels anytime soon, whatever um, we choose to do. Now, as long as the government can continue to borrow cheaply, we should be more relaxed about it. It's very natural to have more debt if you know that you're going to be able to continue to borrow at very, very low interest rates. Um, what we need to worry about is, well, what happens the next time a bad shock comes along? How worried are we about the next recession? And the OBR says that, has pointed out that we tend to have a recession every 10 years in the UK, and it's now 10 years since the last one. Um, financial crises come along. Um, so you know, there's a trade-off between making sure we're well prepared for that next crisis, which arguably we should have been better prepared for in 2008. The Labour government could have done more to reduce debt over the decade between 97 and 2008. Um, versus, well, actually, you know, we don't, we, we like to have low taxes and we like to have high spending and there's a cost to having low borrowing. Gemma, your thoughts on just, you know, where this debate now is? I, I think the only thing I would add is the sort of the question of where should borrowing be now, where should it be in five years' time, which is about that trade-off between the cost of servicing debt, the risk that you have a recession and it th whacks up debt again and raises concerns among investors. But there is also the longer term question, which is looking at the sort of public spending pressures that we have beyond mm. the next five years. Actually, there are, there are pressures we need to deal with from the ageing and growing population. So the sort of, it's not just a question of where do we think borrowing needs to be today and therefore what choices do we need to make about tax and the structure of our public services, but we also need to be thinking about do we have the right systems and structure of promises in place that we can actually continue to afford to provide these services at the current tax take or given tax plans in the future. Thanks. Um, let's have some questions now. We could clearly go on quite a, quite a while, but um, there are going to be a lot of detailed questions here. Okay, hands, hands up. Okay, the one over there. Uh, Paul Hudson. Um, I'm retired from academic life, but I still keep my research interests going. Uh, thanks very much, in fact, to the speakers, up to the usual five-star standard, in fact, that we've come to expect from the two institutes. Um, I'm 80 years old. I'm in good health, fortunately, but I'm part of the generation. There's a bit of a drain, in fact, on those who are still in work. I've never understood why it is that I don't make any, I know it's not a hypothecated, hypothecated tax, 
why we don't make actually national insurance contributions. Now, if we did, on the same basis as those who are in the workforce, would that make a significant difference, in fact, to a highly significant difference, in fact, to the, um, uh, to the government's uh, revenues? I mean, I feel that we should be paying, but I can't understand why I don't. Well, thank you for that generous <laughs> <laughs> contribution to the national finances. Carl. Um, yes, and so there's, there's, there's two big um, advantages that um, those over the state pension age or the retired population get. One is that, in terms of national insurance, one is that they don't have to pay any national insurance on their earnings. Um, so we could suddenly say, well, actually, why don't we collect national insurance on the earnings of those above the state pension age just as we do on those below? You'd collect a little bit more extra money. It wouldn't be a big deal, but you might think that's appropriate. It's not obvious why we have a... It's not, that it's not been done really by design to have a lower tax rate on the earnings of those who happen to be above the state pension age. A much bigger deal is how we treat private pension saving, um, where essentially if somebody... If an employer makes a pension contribution on someone's behalf, neither the employer nor the employee has to pay national insurance on that when it's accrued. And then when that income is paid out as a pension, there's no national insurance on it when it's received, which is remarkably generous. We're not, it's not like income tax, where we say you don't have to pay tax when the money goes into the pension, but you will pay it when, you come, when it comes out. And it's not like saving in an ISA, where you pay your income tax, put it in an ISA, but when you take the money out of an ISA, there's no income tax. It's not being paid on the way in, and it's not being paid on the way out, which is very, very, very generous. Um, and it's an incredibly strong case for trying to impose either national insurance on employer contributions to pensions when they're made, or alternatively trying to levy some national insurance on pension in private pension income, which could make quite a big difference to the public finances. Um, you probably have to phase that in, um, introduce it gradually over a period of time, because clearly some you know, people will have made savings decisions legitimately on the basis of not expecting to pay national insurance on the way out. Um, but I think there, you know, there's a very, very strong case for ending that subsidy. Thanks. Gemma, do you have views on that? I mean, the only other thing, obviously, once upon a time, the National Insurance Fund was set up to be a contributory system to the benefits you get out. We've obviously now essentially removed all that link between the contributions you make and the benefits you get out. So the, the case for maintaining the relationship between contributions on earnings for the working age population and those benefits has been hugely eroded over recent years, well, over recent decades. Great, next question here on the aisle. And if there's anyone next door uh, who wants to ask a question, please stick your head around the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my name is um, Councillor Mike Roberts from local government. Um, I was getting a bit frustrated because nobody was mentioning about local government and the problems, the technical problems, more than technical problems that we have in delivering any kind of services at the moment. Um, the latest figure for HS2 has now gone up to 62 billion, I understand, and rising, and there's not a centimetre of track actually laid. 10,000 bodies who, who have got in the way. Um, that doesn't seem to uh, be part of the calculations. The Elizabeth line is completely over budget, and God knows which decade it's going to be before probably another uh, queen or king will have to open it. Um, the latest figures we have from local government is 8.7 billion has been taken away from us uh, in relationship to funding. Whilst one or two councils had a, a problem in the current financial year, the uh, stress test that the LGA does, and I used to be a senior councillor there, 
many other councillors, councils are going to have a problem in the current financial year. Uh, and the reason why um, children's services particularly have gone up is because of safeguarding, it is because of mental health, and it's because of a whole lot of things which have come from recent events mm. involving children. So there, there are, you know, and I wish, you know, we could be as equal in discussions uh, at the table as um, the focus on some of the other areas. And what's happened to all the money, that we mm. money supply extra that we actually printed, is it 425 billion? Some figure like that? Okay, great. There's a lot packed into that from infrastructure uh, overshooting to um, what's happened to local government and the QE. Uh, Gemma, do you want to start? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so on the, um, your reference to infrastructure and capital spending, so there's obviously there is a slight difference between money we might spend on one-off infrastructure projects versus the annual recurring costs of local public services. Um, however, work that we've done here has highlighted the continued over-optimism in planning those sorts of mega-projects um, and the political reluctance once committed to those projects to actually then change course once it becomes apparent that actually they're going to cost an awful lot more money. And had you known that from the outset, you might not have chosen to uh, prioritise in that way. Um, you are right that local government has borne a lot of the brunt of spending cuts in recent years. Um, and in a sense hasn't been as obvious in the debate and one kind of reason for that is that local authorities can't overspend their budgets so the thing that always gets squeezed in local authority unlike the NHS where you have headlines about NHS trusts running deficits when demand exceeds uh, spending allocations in local authorities something else has to give and it's um, it's often services where we don't have a lot of very good data on exactly what those are so it's all the it's the other stuff that local authorities are doing that's not adults and children's social care that's been squeezed around the edges and actually there's not a lot of visibility on what the impacts of those are. Um, and it's easier politics, isn't it? In a sense, for, for at least for national politicians, um, in, in that they can push it down to the local level. Yeah. And people, it, but it is building up quite a pol political problem, it seems to me, that, that you know, people think that they're paying their, uh, their, their local taxes for things like libraries and parks and rubbish collection. Yeah. And in fact, it, um, the budgets are going more and more on social care and they don't uh, realize that that's where it's going. Yeah. Or do they benefit yeah. always from it? Indeed, and, and sort of oddly, actually, the, the one area of tax rises we have seen has been extra council tax increases yeah. to pay for social care notionally, but obviously there's just a trade-off within the overall budgets. Yeah, I think I'd add, I mean, it's. Uh, in terms of how the, allocate, how the cuts have been allocated over the last decade, it's notable that central government um, rather generously has imposed a bigger than average cut on local government than it has done to the, to the services it provides. Um, and it's done that through cutting the grants that it pays local authorities by a very, very large amount, which mechanically has had the effect that means that if you're a local authority who's not so grant dependent, you get more of your money from council tax. It hasn't been so bad because freezing council tax at least means you're not cutting it. Whereas if you're a local authority where you're relatively grant dependent, you've had to suffer bigger cuts in your budgets. That's mechanically how it's worked out. 
Um, and going forward, there's also an issue there as we move towards kind of greater devolution of tax powers. There's clearly an issue for to what extent will the local authorities who benefit from high growth in their business rates and their council taxes, will they be the authorities that are experiencing high growth in their adult social, adult social care needs? Or will there not be a very strong correlation, which will mean in some parts of the country perhaps some local authorities will find it relatively easy to cope, whereas others might find it much, much harder? Mm. Yeah, but let, me, let me just ask you both. There's a lot in there, and then I'll come to um, Julian at the door and others. Um, but um, when, when the Treasury uh, and other departments, but when, when governments are faced with this very difficult thing of where do you spend money for the most effect, and you're trying to weigh a rail line against trying to get more kids at GCSE to have better maths and English grades, um, you've got, you're weighing up all these things. How, how sophisticated do you think these kind of decision uh, processes are. Um, regular goers will know there's often an invitation in our events to take a run at the Treasury Green Book, but, which this is, I guess, one. But, um, you know, these, these are the kind of trade-offs that um, the Treasury is, is forced to make. Yes, and it's incredibly difficult when you're trying to work out, you know, spending on a seven-year-old what the return to that might be um, in terms of quality of their life or in terms of their subsequent earnings um, versus some infrastructure project where it's about do we spend on a particular train line or a road. Um, it's easier to compare within things so once you've given, um, you know, if you've decided this is our priority towards schools perhaps you're then in a world where you can compare interventions which might have more similar types of impacts and you can say well this is more effective than this at achieving this outcome and you'll be better you know you can make better judgments there and within the infrastructure budget you know are we better off spending money on kind of perhaps less high profile road repairs than we are perhaps on spending money on big flagship new train lines up the middle of the country um, but once you're comparing across those services it's very very difficult and of course it's not all about an economic return anyway because most of the spending we're doing on the NHS isn't really about trying to make the country more productive or anything like that it's clearly about trying to help a group of people who are particularly vulnerable at the door Thank you. Um, Julian McRae from King's College London. Um, thank you for an excellent presentation. Um, I was wondering, actually, as you were going through it, whether you thought Gavin Williamson, the Defence Secretary, might be worth him listening to what you were talking about, <laughs> given this morning he's talking about expanding the military role in the UK. It seems, <laughs> seems he also hasn't read the PAC report on the hole in his equipment budget, which arises largely from the optimism that went into the 2015 spending review. Um, there's clearly a couple of really key economic issues here. One is a time inconsistency for politicians. I'm not sure we can do much about that. I think Rory Stewart is on the hook for sorting out prisons when a fair chunk of the cabinet created the problem for him in their stints at the Ministry of Justice. But is there any way to do something about the more technical side of the optimism bias that tends to come into uh, spending reviews? Is there any way, to, for example, to try and anchor the types of assumptions about efficiency that might be possible, or to look at historic series and say, well, actually there's a range in which plans are credible in terms of what we commit to produce for the amount we input in a way that might cut out some of that really, really obvious optimism bias that took place in 2015 and looks very likely to happen in 2019. Thank you. Thanks very much. Optimism bias and defence, a soft target. 
Yeah, so in, I mean, in terms of the numbers I've assumed, I've assumed that we increase the NHS budget in line with the economy because defense, our defence budget, once you add in um, security services, is just above 2% of GDP. So I'm kind of assuming they get the minimum that would be consistent mm. with that. Now, if you think the defence budget might get a bigger increase, then it is in scope, it is part of the spending review, and actually if we give it more, then there's clearly less left over for everyone else. But I'm assuming that won't be the case and that it, we are in a world where... Um, it will only be just compliant with the 2% of GDP commitment. They were obviously particularly hit by sterling falling because they yes, and there was stuff some, from overseas. And there's one example where some additional money has been made available, perhaps for very good reasons. Mm. When, the, when sterling fell, the purchases of things denominated in dollars obviously goes up in price. And the Treasury did find some extra money for the MOD last year for that. Um, I mean, in terms of the optimism bias, I think actually it's quite striking that in 2010 we had a spending review that covered a four-year period for departments that looked incredibly difficult to deliver. Um, and actually, the reason the deficit in 2014-15 was a lot higher than we expected had absolutely nothing to do with public spending. Those public spending plans were pretty much kept to by all departments, and it was all about the economy was smaller and there was less tax revenue. Um, so in terms of keeping to the numbers, we've been incredibly good in the sense that we, we haven't made many adjustments for better or worse. Um, spending reviews have tended to stick. Now, whether that's translated into the kinds of decisions you want within departments and the kind of services you thought you were going to get is a very different matter. Yeah, I mean, on, on the point about um, the technical side of the assumptions, um, so, so things we were arguing in our report at the end of last year on what the spending review should do, the Treasury and departments could clearly be a lot more transparent about what they really think this money allocated at the spending review translates to in terms of expected outputs of services. And it, simple things along the sorts of lines of what I was outlining in my presentation, like this is your plan for spending. Realistically, what do you think is demand for these services over the next few years? And what does that imply um, for what you're really assuming about the efficiency improvements of different services? And if you are tr more transparent about those assumptions, then that allows people outside to scrutinise that and look at whether that really looks credible and have a more open, upfront conversation about that. Um, I mean, we, in a sense, we saw that with the NHS settlement. So the many health think tanks and the IFS report with the Health Foundation sort of outlined what spending growth would you need to keep pace with the age profile of the population over the next few years and additional cost pressures that might face the NHS. And that gives you a, a number for the NHS budget, which is what they were given. We haven't typically seen the same sorts of discussions and outline plans being made for other areas of public services. Thanks. We've got here, um, one here and, there, and, then, and then on the aisle. Sorry, yep. And then I'll come. Hi, my name's Saha Dinesh from BSI. I was just wondering, um, the government had ambitions to um, spe um, R&D spending, public R&D spending, to be 2.4% of GDP. I think it was the 2017 spe statement. I was wondering your thoughts on going forward, whether that's still, um, you see that still being a viable ambition, and whether things like industrial strategy and um, investment in, in sort of in UK innovation is still going to be high on the agenda. Quick, quick direct response to that. Go right. on. So I'm afraid I don't know how far we are away from that target. I mean, to the extent to which the R&D is coming from the NHS and from defence, you could imagine it growing over the next few years. But to the extent to which the R&D is coming from outside of those departments, it seems pretty hard to imagine it growing. 
Um, so, I mean, I think the 2.4% is for total R&D spend in the UK, both public and private. So part of their ability to achieve that is whether they manage to attract in as much private sector R&D as they're hoping for. Um, so I think it's Carl outlined in his presentation a bit briefly. So we're focusing mainly here on day-to-day -day spending. The plans and outturns for capital spending, which includes R&D spending, have been quite different. Um, so the there was quite a squeeze on those areas of spending through the 2010 spending review. Um, but from 2015 onwards, the government's actually made quite a sort of step change in their ambitions for spending more on infrastructure and research and development. Um, I think it remains to be seen whether they can continue to achieve those things. I mean, most a lot of the public R&D spending is done through UK research and um, innovation. Um, so the money is being allocated. All right, here on the actually loads of hands going up. It's funny how it happens. Right here on the, on the aisle, and I'll take several together now. Go on. I am David Whitaker. I work at Deloitte. Um, the difficult choices over tax has been mentioned, and council tax just now. I just wondered, do you think in the coming years, central government will see tax devolution as potentially an increasingly attractive option, given that it could not only raise more revenue at a local level, satisfying local demands, but also circumventing some of the controversy that you might say, for example, see in council tax where you could allow local authorities to choose their own bands, for example, or choose their own rating system. Very well put. Actually, let's take that one on its own. There's a lot, a lot in it. And then I'll... Yeah, so I mean, we already have um, increasing amounts of tax devolution. Scottish Parliament now having, used, having and using its tax raising um, powers. I think there's clearly a need for us to think a bit more strategically about what we're devolving and why to different parts of the country. It's rather odd that we have given the Scottish Parliament the ability to change the tax, income tax rate on earned income, but they don't have national insurance, they, the other tax on earnings, they don't have income tax on other parts of income, which has some rather slightly bizarre effects. Um, clearly there's the issue I alluded to before, which is about well, where is the growth in demand for additional spending, where's that falling across the country, and is that growth in demand happening to coincide with the areas where perhaps there's more scope to increase taxes, or is that not the case? There's clearly an issue there about the extent to which we want to have um, redistribution across the country and share in those risks versus the case for saying, well, actually, if one local area wants more spending, they should pay for it through taxes that they are paying, and there's a trade-off there. Um, but it could be, you know, it could well be a direction that we move in. Thanks. All right, uh, here. Hi there, thank you. Um, George Robbs from the BBC. I, I wonder if you could just say a bit more about um, potential no-deal emergency measures. You did touch on it briefly um, whilst you were speaking, but I don't know if you were aware last week we saw reports about a potential project after and any kind of emergency measures that could be put in place because of no deal, and any potential effects that might have on inflation, for example. Could you say a bit more about what might be available to the chance of that? Yeah, so in a kind of disorderly no deal world, there'll be a need for some extra spending on things like border issues, so HMRC, for example, needing an increase in its budget, um, at least in the near term. The analysis the government's done, analysis colleagues of mine at IFS has done, has also suggested that in such a scenario there'll be some industries that'll be particularly hard hit. The industries which are importing from Europe components, doing something with those components and then exporting them back could be particularly hard hit by the tariffs and the fact that they'll be hit more than once by the non-tariff um, barriers. So you might imagine those industries suffering particularly badly in the near term 
and you want to have some measures that kind of alleviate that pain, either because you want to kind of manage the decline in those industries in a, in a, in a slightly better way, or because you think actually some short-term support can have better longer-term outcomes. Perhaps if we can get the industries through the first couple of years, they'll manage to survive in the long run, whereas if they go under in the first year or two, we'll have lost them um, forever. So you might be looking at measures like that. Um, if there's a big shock to consumer confidence or business confidence, we would expect to see consumer spending and business investment falling quite dramatically. And in which case, there might be a, you might want to go down the route of trying to stimulate demand in the economy. And normally when we do that, we loosen monetary policy. There may well be issues about whether we can loosen monetary policy a lot more. We know interest rates are already very, very low. So if it's the case you want to loosen more but you can't, then there's a case for fiscal policy stepping in. Um, so, for example, if it's consumer spending you wanted to stimulate, you could say, well, we'll have a temporary cut to VAT. Or indeed, you could say, I'm going to pre-announce a future rise in VAT. Because both of those things say that prices will be temporarily lower now compared to the future. And that will encourage consumers to spend, hopefully, and hopefully offset that effect of their confidence. If it's business investment, you could say, well... We want more investment in the economy, maybe we should do more public sector investment directly, and I think it's worth noting the government's already, its, it's plans already imply a 15% increase in investment spending between this year and next. So the Chancellor's already got the investment tap kind of turned on fairly strongly. If it's business, if it's private sector investment, you could say, well, let's do something in corporation tax to encourage investment now. And in fact, for firms looking to invest between 200,000 pounds and a million pounds a year, the government has said that temporarily between January 2019 and December 2020, the corporation tax system is going to treat them more generously. So that, that kind of suggests the Chancellor's already worried about business investment being subdued through that period. But they're the kind of measures on the kind of tax side you might look at, which of course are not really anything to do with the spending review. And those measures on the demand side are really about a world where you, can be, you feel relaxed about inflationary pressures because you think the hit to demand is perhaps bigger than the hit to supply and the spare capacity in the economy, um, and we want to help manage our way through that. Sounds marvellously manageable. Um, <laughs> but it's your first point about the support for particular sectors that, I, as, as you were talking, I wondered was understated, because it, it's not just ones who are importing and exporting a few components, is it? I mean, if uh, the, the um, sort of dairy products uh, industry <coughs> are really very eloquent and alarmed about saying, look, ah, uh, all kinds of uh, places we export to now covered by free trade agreements uh, that the EU has. Uh, um, actually, we, you know, we'd be, our products would double in price um, overnight if we're selling under WTO rules. And they're, they're I'm nudging you to see if you might, might think that there are actually quite a lot of sectors of the economy that might have uh, reason to call on government. Support. Yes, there's certainly a lot of sectors um, which would suffer from the trade barriers. Um, there's very few that would, we, our analysis at least suggests very few would gain. Um, so it's a very, very large number of sectors. You'd really be wanting to look at which ones are suffering particularly badly, where perhaps the employees are going to suffer particularly badly because they'll find it very difficult to move into alternative work very quickly. Um, so, for example, if you are a relatively low-educated man working in the car industry in the West Midlands, who you might have very, very specific skills to that industry that might mean that you're paid relatively well, you might struggle to kind of get that kind of salary somewhere else, so we might need some measures to try and ease that pain for you. Um, 
there might be particular parts of the country you want to target support at. Um, if, if hard borders were going to appear in the island of Ireland, you might imagine Northern Ireland suffering particularly strongly because the trade links there would be particularly big. Um, so it would have to be, you know, you, there'd be a lot of work to work out exactly where um, the taxpayers' money would be best spent, which levers were really the most effective ones, um, and how is that going to either ease the pain in the short run for people or be measures aimed at trying to leave us in a better place in 10, 15 years' time? I, mean, I think, in part, the, the appropriate response depends on the thing we haven't seen yet, which is a government statement about where we think the UK is going to be in 10 to 15 years' time in terms of its trading relationships with people. If you were to go down the uh, global free, unilateral free trade approach that some people advocate, that would obviously suggest that the UK dairy industry would probably be pretty uncompetitive in the world in future um, because it would be open to competition from the entire rest of the world, in which case you're talking about thinking about measure, managing the decline of an industry. If, in fact, you think the government has some different longer-term plan, you're talking about helping that industry to navigate the next few years until we're in a position to renegotiate those for trade deals with other parts of the country. So in part, it depends on where we're going, quite how you would manage that. Here on the aisle. Thank you. Mark Langdale from Arcadis. Um, given how radical uh, the cuts in public spending have been in the last 10 years, isn't it extraordinary how unradical the changes have been to the structure of government, both centrally and locally. So we've had a couple of departments stitch in a new name, put in digital, call themselves a ministry, and a couple of made-up departments added for Brexit, but presumably dealt with after it. Um, and local government, obviously, very significant change at the regional level. But overall, why for the 2020s, if we get back to the game of spending reviews, taking a longer-term view, why shouldn't we expect some of the answer to the challenges that you both pose not lie in a fundamental rethink around the delivery structures? Because what we've currently got clearly isn't affordable. Thank you. I'm not sure that isn't it extraordinary that quite counts as a question. But anyway, it's a good, um, <laughs> a good point. Can I also take uh, another one behind? And we're coming to the last bids for questions, but it was a good point. Um, um, we just had the uh, final local authority settlement for 1920. Could I ask you about your feeling for um, future settlements? You said earlier that your central case was, I think, 0.4% cut in real terms for unprotected central government departments. Um, can I infer from that you inf that you would anticipate a similar trajectory for the revenue support grant? Thank you. Would Thank you like to say who you are for the record? Oh, sorry, I do beg your pardon. My name's Ian McDermott. I'm from Room 151. Great. Thanks. Any other last bids for questions? Right, one here on the aisle. We've got delivery, we've got local settlement. Uh, Jamie Sweeney, I work for Matt Weston MP. Um, how do we best influence decisions going into this spending review and when should we be influencing <laughs> departments? When should we be influencing the Treasury? Excellent. <laughs> um, the first point of raw politics, thanks. Um, great. Um, delivery local authority settlement, um, and how to influence the spending review. Yeah. Um, we start with Gemma and come back to Carl. Um, so on the question of the local government settlement um, point, I guess over the last uh, nearly decade, the local government settlement has been cut by more than the average. Um, that might suggest that a similar thing would happen again if the government's priorities remain the same. On the other hand, 
as I highlighted, there are some particular areas of concern in the services that local government is responsible for financing and delivering. Um, that might tell you that actually you would see a different trajectory going forwards. Perhaps they're the areas that are harder to squeeze again, having been squeezed quite hard um, in the past. As Carl said, obviously the, the implication of the tight squeeze on revenue support grant over the last few years, coupled with a freeze and then an increase in council tax, means that actually obviously the kind of the spending available to local government is now much more dependent on their local council tax and business rates raising uh, rather than the revenue support grant they're getting from central government. Um, on when should we be influencing Parliament and the Treasury? Um, so I think as Carl sort of very well outlined. And how. This is a slightly unusual spending review in the lack of clarity about when this is actually going to happen in earnest and we haven't even yet seen departments being asked to try and think about what, what would they do with this sort of indicative envelope, which is what we've seen in the last few spending reviews. Um, there's a sort of, there's clearly a lack of bandwidth uh, in Parliament and in the Treasury at the moment for engaging with these other very important questions alongside um, Brexit. Uh, how can you influence Parliament? Um, I mean, there's the sorts of trying to highlight the implications of spending settlements for outcomes or outputs of services, I think is probably where the, the focus of discussion needs to be in terms of making the case for needing to spend in some areas or the prioritisation between areas. I mean, on, on the, just on the first question about local government, I mean, as Gemma said, that to date local government has seen its grant cut by more than the average across unprotected services, so you might expect that pattern would continue. I wonder whether actually in joining up with the question we had about more um, local tax, whether that would be um, to square the circle whether it would be a kind of perhaps relatively ungenerous settlement in terms of grant combined with greater ability for local authorities to increase council tax if they wanted to, for example, to increase spending on adult social care might be the way in which you know, local authorities' budgets as a whole um, perhaps don't suffer by more than the average across unprotected services, but it wouldn't be money coming from central government that was making that up. It would be a kind of relaxation of what central government's letting local authorities do in terms of putting up their council tax rates. I think we're going to have to draw it to a close there. I don't think Mark quite got an answer to his point about delivery, but we can pick that up after. Thank you very much for terrific questions. And Carl and your colleagues, uh, thank you very much indeed for bringing the report here today. Gemma, thanks.